0: This is On The Grid, powered by theracetalk.com, on mypodcasthouse.com. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of On The Grid here on mypodcasthouse.com or on the Radio Show Limited's RS1. Thank you for joining us. Another big show coming up. We're going to speak to the head commentator of the NBC's coverage of IndyCar, Lee Diffie, to join Richard Crowe shortly for a chat. We're also going to talk motor racing sponsorship it's going to be an interesting chat as well with Tom Archuli who will have a chat to us about Doric's uh, involvement with motor racing. And we'll also uh, we'll have a chat with Mark Walker as well and Richard Crail about what's been happening in the world of motorsport. First of all, though, the news and off the back of the cancellation of the Winton Supersprint, Victorian teams are now awaiting the decision from the state government as to whether or not lockdown will be extended. With the ongoing coronavirus issues in Victoria, Supercars has requested its teams cross the border in preparation for Darwin. Supercars at first seem reluctant to force teams into a border dash like last year. However, the situation has resulted in Supercars issuing a statement that read, in response to the unfolding COVID-19 situation in Victoria, Supercars has informed teams to prepare to leave for New South Wales to enable entry into the Northern Territory. The six affected teams are set to head north This week, the F1 Circus is ready to race in Baku, Azerbaijan this weekend. Dale Rogers has this report. Thanks, Tony. Formula One returns to the streets of Baku in Azerbaijan
1: this weekend for round six of the FIA Formula One World Championship. So to start off, where the hell is Baku Uh, and how do you get there? Well, basically, if you go to Turkey and head east, you'll eventually hit the Caspian Sea. Uh, and that's where it is, a beautiful part of the world uh, and Baku sitting or nestled on this magnificent Caspian Sea. It's the fifth time Formula One has visited uh, this circuit, uh, but only it's the only the fourth Azerbaijan Grand Prix in 2016. In fact, it was the European Grand Prix, which was won by Valfrey Bottas. Bottas has two wins at the track. Um, Lewis Hamilton won, and our own Danny Rick uh, also has a, has a win. Um, so some highlights of this track. It's a very, very unique and strange layout, really. Uh, it's, it's nearly six kilometres long, making it the third longest track uh, on the calendar of any track uh, around the world that we're running on at the moment. It's a Herman Tilke design uh, which, which combines uh, both parts of this uh, city, the, what they call the new district and the old part of the city, and the cars run through uh, both, often... Um, uh, really by, almost side-by-side side in some parts. of so it. The key factor is a 2.2 kilometre straight which really sees the cars flat out from Turn 16 right down to Turn 1. Uh, and, and this will be uh, one of the great passing opportunities because you get cars that, that can just pull up and, and with the DRS and just drag past cars as we've seen. Some highlights from the past. Well, we saw... Um, Uh, Sebastian Vettel uh, really give it up to uh, Lewis Hamilton and drive up the backside of the Mercedes in 2017 and cop a pretty severe penalty under safety car. Um, Daniel Ricciardo and uh, Max Verstappen uh, decided that neither Red Bull was going to go anywhere in 2018 when they took each other off in the run down to turn one, much to the disgrace of Christian Horner and one of the most controversial accidents at the track. And Lance Stroll uh, in 2017 uh, probably put the only smile I've ever seen on his father's face by popping the Williams onto the podium uh, in 2017. And really a very, very good drive too, it was. And finally, who could forget Roman Grosjean uh, calling back to the pits saying he'd been hit by a car, uh, which turned out to be a Phantom Formula 1 car as he was warming up his tyres under safety car uh, and bin the house into the wall. But that's all the history. We're here to play with a, with a new... Uh, line-up this weekend. Um, so it's really, I guess, on this sort of track, is it the big test for Red Bull? Do they really have the speed to cover the Mercedes? Uh, they will need Perez right up there this time because we know the Mercedes will be very strong on this track. They have been uh, at every Grand Prix held at, at uh, Baku to date. Uh, so that will be the battle, obviously. It will be the speed and the agility of the, of the Red Bull against the, uh, the known quantity of the Mercedes. Um, the Ferraris, Definitely showed great pace in Monaco, totally different track here. We expect that they should be on the pace. Um, The McLarens, yeah, I mean, uh, there's no question that um, uh, the Lando's doing an awesome job, but we really need to see Dan, who's had some great success on this track, see if he can really get back into the groove. So it should be a great battle. You do see some quite amazing uh, passing in this race, uh, given, the, given the fact that the DRS has open for so long down that main straight. Uh, expect a bit of carnage. There has not been a year so far we haven't seen some pretty serious uh, action on track, and I'd expect exactly the same this weekend, Tony. So it um, should be a good one uh, after, uh, after Monaco, which we've all uh, admitted was great to watch, but a uh, terrible race. Let's hope that we get back to some great racing in Baku this weekend at the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Back to you
0: in the studio, Tony. The Indy 500 has been run and Juan Helio Castroneves being crowned a four-time winner of the event. Scott McLaughlin had to serve a drive-through penalty because of speeding in Pitt Lane. While that stopped him from finishing in the top 10, he was awarded the leading rookie driver. More on the Indy 500 shortly when Richard Crowell catches up with Aussie Lee Diffie, the man who led the NBC coverage. And finally, we finish finished the news segment on a sad note with the news of 19-year-old rider Jason Dupasquia, who passed away because of injuries he sustained during a Moto3 qualifying accident at Mugello. Dupasquia went down in front of another rider, Ayumi Sasaki, causing him to crash as well. However, he was able to walk away from the incident. Dupasquia was attended to by medical crews and was airlifted to a hospital in Florence. However, it was later confirmed he had passed away. Our thoughts are with his family and friends during this difficult time. Fabio Quartararo went on to win the MotoGP race. Jack Miller finishing sixth. All right, let's get into the show. This is On The Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. All right, let's kick off the show by handing it over to Richard Crail, who caught up with NBC's Lee Diffie to have a chat about what was a very, very interesting 105th running of the Indy 500. Crail's
2: well, in the early hours of Monday morning Australian time, the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race was run and won. And it was an absolute thriller. Elio Castroneves winning his fourth Indy 500, joining a list of just three other drivers to achieve that remarkable feat. But perhaps even more remarkable is that for the third year in a row, it was an Aussie behind the microphone to call one of the biggest races in the world. His name is Lee Diffie. And his call of that classic finish was absolutely perfect.
0: Now here, Pelot. Pelot gets closer. There's a four-time win
3: on the line for Elio Castro-Nemes. Look at the crowd. They know history's on the line. Welcome to the four-time club. Elio Castro-Nemes.
0: Speedway.
2: Well, and he joins us now on the line. He's got home after a massive weekend at Indianapolis. Lee Diffie, mate, congratulations on an amazing call of an amazing
3: 105th Indy 500. Richard, thanks. Uh, I, think it's, um, I think it's something I'll never forget. Uh, it was just one of those days where it all came together. Um, perfect weather, uh, perfect temperature for the race, that really enhanced uh, closer racing. Um, the crowd, which was to me the most important element, being back at the Speedway, you know, last year was one of the most, actually not one of, it was the most bizarre thing that I've ever been involved in. It was just eerie. It didn't feel real, didn't feel right. And then, uh, and then for it all to come together uh, this past Sunday felt, felt really good, felt normal. Um, it, you, you don't realize how much juice the crowd gives the event and gives us, even though they we're locked in a broadcast booth. Um, it's, the, it's the secret ingredient and it was the missing ingredient last year. So everything all coming together and then a brilliant race and a brilliant winner, uh, a fitting winner. It couldn't have been better.
2: The crowd really helped tell the story, I think, of the day and the key moments of how it unfolded. I don't think anyone will forget that moment. Connor Daly hit the lead for the first time and the place erupted. It was extraordinary and, and
3: it was clear as day through the broadcast as well. It certainly was. And, and that, and for Connor, you know, being, being an indie kid and um, you know, his dad, Derek racing there, I think I mentioned on the broadcast that Connor did something that Derek never did. And that was lead a lap, let alone lead the most laps, you know, lead 40. And um, you know, he's pretty bummed about the way that it panned out in the end. But, you know, I said to him, Hey, listen, people don't forget guys who lead 40 laps, lead the most laps in an Indy 500. So it'll, it'll come your way one day, but yeah, that was a magical moment.
2: And then it all just built and built, didn't it until that, finish did, did you get the feeling that castron evers was in for something special i mean he was a contender all day the car was clearly very good but it felt like his experience in those last 20 laps that shootout with polo uh, and pato award all of his 21 indie starts it all sort of built towards
3: that moment of him pulling that move with two to go i mean i think you have to say that that the way that polo and award drove was was fantastic. I mean you just know those guys are going to be around for a long time but you know I, Elio has been so brilliant for so long um, but if there's one place that is made for him it's it's the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and I remember the very first time that I did a broadcast from there was 2013 got to work with Gilles de Ferran Elio's great friend and, and an Indy 500 winner himself and he just said there's something about Elio and this place there's something about the way that elio drives this place that is you know it might be a bit of a stretch to say unique but there's just something about the two entities that go together and so in those closing laps um i don't know i can't i'd be lying if 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 or any any of us said that we knew that he was going to do it but you kind of had that feeling
2: from a broadcaster (laughs) point of view what's it like to work at that place and then have the opportunity to call the finish of of a major moment in that place's history. Cause it's not every day you add a four time winner to the winners list there in 105 races. Just, can you explain what that's like as a, as a broadcaster from the booth at the, the top of the pagoda there?
3: Pretty special. <laughs> yeah. Pretty special for, for a kid from the Brisbane suburbs. Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm still, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, two days later, it's still soaking in, um, but boy, it felt good. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and um, not just me, but for, for the two guys I share the booth with, Paul Tracy and Townsend Bell, I mean, we all, I don't know. I, I, I think we knew even before it happened that we were part of something special. And again, I come back to the crowd. You know, it was just such an amazing day. It was just, it, it just felt right. You know, for all the, for everything that everybody has been through during COVID, not just here in the US, but in Australia and in Europe and in, in Asia, like every, like everywhere it was just for me it was the it was the first time that something felt normal again and uh, for it to be the race that played out you know we commentate richard from the ninth floor of the pagoda yeah. which is a pretty special vantage point anyway we can see you know if we look to our right we can see them about halfway through the short shoot from 3 to 4 and then we can see them through 4 all the way up the front straight and into 1 not that we commentate you know looking out the windows we, we use that uh, as a visual tool if we need to we need to commentate mm-hmm. on what everybody's watching at home as you know as a broadcaster but um, it, it was it was amazing um, it's probably it's probably one of if not the most you know special special broadcast of my career um, just because of the story right and the mm-hmm. way that it unfolded and at the end <clears throat> excuse me at the end not saying anything yeah. you know after you know with Elio's victory walk and and the fence climb not saying anything, you know, what, what we didn't say meant more than what we said, you know, it was listening and going along for the journey with him. So all of those elements just came together on that day.
2: Yeah. That, that finish was amazing. The, the celebration of Castroneves and the way you guys let it breathe. It, it felt very uh, un-American TV, if you know what I mean, just, just completely raw and unfiltered um, not overly produced, just this amazing live moment, but it perfectly summed up the whole race for mine. And, and I, you could have turned off here and gone to bed at five o'clock in the morning, but I'd found it utterly <laughs> captivating and just kept watching the whole way through. It was extraordinary.
3: I think only Elio could pull that off, you know, yes. if it was somebody else, it was somebody else. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have had the same pizzazz or the, or the same. Um, do you know, I'll tell you something. I haven't seen it come out yet in, in public or on social media, but on Sunday night, we had an NBC all group get together. Our bosses, you know, corralled us and um, we had pizza and some drinks. And, uh, and it was just a great kind of um, debrief and just kind of everybody, uh, a group uh, sigh, you know, yeah. like kind of, yeah. you know, get, get off the gas, so to speak. And one of my colleagues said, look at this. I just got sent this from, a, from a, uh, an NBC affiliate. Um, a staff member, like somebody in the NBC family, was in the crowd right in front of Elio as oh, he climbed the fence. And so that video is going to come out eventually, but it was from this guy's perspective, looking at Elio from from in the crowd, climbed the fence, and it was wow. right in front of him. And it was crazy. It was just like the way that the, the fans reacted. And, and um, you know, usually at the 500, as soon as it's over, the place is like, yep. you know, it, it just... Uh, it empties very quickly and the police, the local police do a great job at at funneling everybody out of there. And I hadn't seen, um, you know, I first went to to India in 2001, I think 2001 or 2002, one of the early years, Neil Crompton and I were there together for channel 10. And um, anyway, so just call it 20 years ago. And, you know, I've never seen that many people stick around afterwards. You know, everyone wanted to be part of the LEO party and Mm. the LEO celebration.
2: There was a video, I think Chris Medlin, I think from racer magazine who who managed to get in just before the race from the UK posted, uh, watching from pit road of the crowd chanting Elio's name. And it sounded like a European soccer game or something <laughs> remarkable like that. That's just, just unbelievable. Um, I'm not sure that race has ever been viewed by more people in Australia or New Zealand. Um, at one time, everyone getting up at two in the morning to watch because of the, not just the Scott Dixon factor and the willpower factor, but the Scott McLaughlin factor um, as someone who's done a similar thing and, and gone overseas and, and applied his own trade in the States, especially um, what's your read on Scott and how he's not just settled into IndyCar, but how his first Indy 500 went. Cause from our end, it was really, really impressive. One little blip on the radar. I don't think takes away from
3: that overall weekend performance. No, he he's, he's doing remarkably well. Like he's, he's actually incredible. Mm. Um, without that hiccup on, on pit road, he would have been in the top 10, if not the top five, in my opinion. I mean, he had the pace, you know, what did he cut? Where did he go? He came from 17th to eighth, I think yep. it was as high as he got seventh or eighth. Um, and he was there, he was sitting with them. They were, everyone was playing the fuel strategy game, but you know, for him to go there for the first time, be the best qualifying team Penske car. And and then, you know, at one point, be the highest running team Penske Car is yeah. extraordinary. So, you know, he's just um, the, the one word that keeps coming back whenever you talk to Rick Mears or Tim Sindrick or, or anybody, um, Jonathan Duguid, his engineer, is methodical. You know, and the other thing I think that's important for everybody to remember he's done a bunch of testing, he's done Barber Motorsports Park which he calls the most intense track that he's ever been to. He said, you've got to show more commitment there than Bathurst. Yeah. Which is crazy. I've never heard anybody describe it like that. Then he goes to the streets of St. Petersburg, which is just a crazy house. Then you go to Texas Motor Speedway, which is one of the most uh, treacherous speedways as far as, you know, you put, a you know, especially now with that, that PJ one grip stuff they have on the track, which doesn't suit Indy cars, by the way, you put a wheel wrong there. You're in the fence at, at over 200 miles an hour. And then you go to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and he, he's made one mistake. And unfortunately that was coming into pits on, on, on at Indy. So, you know, to do all of that, all of that, that variation, all of those different challenges and he's made one error to me, that just shows that uh, in, in my opinion, you're looking at a future Indy car champion and a future Indy 500 winner. I've got
2: road America circled in my own little personal calendar of when I think podium perhaps if not even better because that just strikes me as the kind of track that at all gel will be long enough into the season where it all click um, and that circuit it's everything that Scott McLaughlin loves in a racetrack and where he's performed so well in supercars just you know massive high speed commitment stuff that he showed on the weekend that he's amazing at that that I, I think by that point of the season he'll be a, a legitimate contender if, if Penske's um, cars roll out well which they should do a strange anonymous weekend for them in a way and who would have thought you'd ever see willpower in bump day for the indy 500 but um quite remarkable stuff um what about you mate how's your, your take on indycar at the moment it's phenomenally competitive series to be involved with isn't it
3: yeah and and you know I, I i um i preface these comments with no disrespect to any other series in the world but i think it's i think it's the best mm. I think it's the best um, because we go to the racetrack each and every week, not know, legitimately not knowing who's going to win, which is a really nice thing, isn't it? Because most series you could kind of point to two or three or four people who you know are almost assured of winning. That's not the case in IndyCar. Um, hence, hence, what's happened this year, you know, six races, six different winners. Um, that's and not a record. Penske, that's been uh, done before, but Pensky pretty... hasn't won yet. <laughs> and a Pensky has not won. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I don't know off the top of my tired head if that's a record or not, but uh, I'll, I'll look into that. I'll get our stats. Got to look at that. But yeah, I think IndyCar, you know, I had this chat with Chip Ganassi in, in Texas in the hotel lobby a few weeks ago. And I said, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, asking, you know, what about IndyCar right now? And, you know, in your opinion, what's the golden era? To, is it back to the cart days and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I don't, I, I don't care to look in the rearview mirror. He said, If you want to know what the golden days are of IndyCar, they're now, and I think that's a pretty pretty good point. Um, You look at the health of the series with sponsors. You look at the health of the series with the teams, and there's no there's no Richard. There's no junk teams. Mm. There's no crappy teams. Like they're it's quality, you know. And one of the smaller and one of the newest teams just won the Indianapolis Motor Speed Indianapolis Five Hundred. Yeah. You know, in Maya Shank Racing, so yeah. up and down the grid, it's 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 phenomenal. Um, you know, probably probably the smallest team, I guess, uh, or one of the smaller teams is, is Dale Coin Racing. You know, they they put they put um uh, Pietro Fittipaldi as the highest qualifying rookie, and not too far out of the fast nine in qualifying for the Indy Five Hundred. So there's there's strength all the way from the the Penske's, the Ganassi's, the Andretti cars, and now you got it. You look at Aaron McLaren SP. Um, you know the the excitement and the, the commitment from McLaren Racing as as an entity. You know they have a section of the McLaren Technology Center in the UK carved out and sectioned off for IndyCar, and and they have people working at the McLaren Technology Center. You know specifically on the IndyCar package. Um, Zach Brown is over here as often as he can be. You know to fit in as many IndyCar races with his with his Formula One and sports car involvement. So yeah, I mean there's there's you know, we could talk all day about it, but in my opinion, I think it's, it's incredible. And I think it's, if you're trying to introduce somebody to a new series who doesn't really know much about motor racing, they're going to get a lot of entertainment from watching in, in, in Indy car racing.
2: Just, just to pick up on one of your points there, one of your early gigs when you went to the States with speed TV was calling grand Am, as it was. And yeah, yeah. That, that's where Michael Shank's team really came to the fore and, and he invested heavily in that. And that, that's what helped build, michael shank racing as it was um into the entity it is now so it it must have been a a cool thing to see that team grab a victory against the heavyweights of
3: indycar racing it was terrific and to see mike and his wife um uh, in in the in the convertible with elio and his lifetime partner and his daughter you know just you know i think mike may have waved more than elio (laughs) (laughs) he was he was just pumped because um Uh, He and his wife, Mary Beth, they don't have children. Their children is the race team. And uh, they put everything, they've sacrificed everything. And um, I can remember those Grand Am days, mate, where he was walking the tightrope of being open or closed. And um, he's just the gutsiest, most determined guy. And, you know, he's a former racer himself. Um, I I think he got to Indy Lights as a driver, um, but brought people up like uh, Sam Hornish Jr., you know, obviously, and eventually an IndyCar champ and, and um, Indy 500 winner. And, you know, he's he's AJ Armendinger. Um, there's been so many people that he's given a start and, and given a helping hand. And then um, to see him call, it actually just dawned on me that I called his Rolex 24 win and his Indy 500 win. Yes. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Um, and you've got a big
2: adventure coming up soon because you're off to do the Olympics for NBC. And there aren't really any bigger jobs in sports broadcasting than that, are they?
3: I'm pretty excited. Yeah, mighty bit, might even be a little bit nervous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It, it'll be my fourth games. Um, uh, I did, I did Sochi in Russia, and then I did Rio. I did uh, in the in the Winter Games. I did the sliding sports, so it's fast. Then it's racing, which obviously fits uh, with, with everything else that I do. Um, so I did bobsled skeleton and luge at the winter games. So that was in Sochi and then in Pyeongchang and then in Rio, I did something I've never done, which was rowing, wow. um, rowing in the flat water sports. So it didn't go quite as fast as I'd like, <laughs> but so to do track and field now, it's going to be really, really, it's going to be fun. It's going to be, um, I think, you know, just trying to tie in the Indy 500 and, and, the games coming up in Tokyo to have the experience that I had last year at, at, uh, at Indy with no fans. Mm. I think that's going to kind of prepare me a little bit for Tokyo. I don't know what Tokyo is going to look like in regards to people in the stadium. I did the track and field world championships in Doha in Qatar at the end of 2019. And there was out of the 10 nights we were on air, there was only really about two nights where there was a decent crowd because there were Qatari athletes competing. The rest of it, there was a pretty lean crowd. So it wasn't enjoyable, but I'm kind of thinking about it big picture. I'm thankful that I had those experiences to prepare me for Tokyo, um, you know, for, for low numbers and and not a, not a great atmosphere, but you know, we won't let that take away from what's happening on the track. Do you go to Japan for that or do you call remotely from the States? No, I'll be there. I'll be in Tokyo. um, Staying right across the road from the stadium. So I think it's going to be a case of um, hotel room, commentary booth hotel room yes. commentary booth <laughs> yeah. they won't there won't be much outside of that do you, do you go back and draw on any
2: any previous olympic commentary mm. that you look at i mean my one of my broadcasting legends is bruce McEvaney and and he's famous for his calls of the 100 and 200 over many many olympics for seven over here do, do you go back and look at that stuff or do you just go into it with an open mind and and put the lead if you spin on it
3: yeah, definitely go into it with an open mind and 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 you know, call with my own style. But then you also you you can't ignore history, right? You have to go back and and um, part of our preparation, as is yours for, for what you do, we watch a lot of tape, as they say. You know, you watch a lot of you watch a lot of clips and races and kind of kind of take it all in. Um, um it's a good question. I don't. I don't. I don't watch tape to try and reproduce what somebody else has done. I think that would be a mistake. You know, you got to mm-hmm. you've got to be yourself, um, but I think you also have to be a student of history. Um, I thought I hope I, d- I don't know what Channel Seven's plans are, but I hope to get a picture with Bruce in Tokyo. That'd be pretty cool. You know, one Aussie there calling it for the Australian audience, and another yeah. Aussie there calling it for the U- U.S. audience. And um, you know, my commentary partner in in track and field is Atto Bolden. The um, oh, yeah from Trinidad and Tobago and the, 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 um, the the sprinting star. And um, he, a lot of, a lot of Atto's greatest races were called by Bruce for for the Australian audience. Yeah. And Atto loves Bruce. Um, So it'd be terrific for the three of us to get a picture together in, in Tokyo, if we could. And, and uh, we'll, we'll see how that works. Yeah. Um, I mean, Atto's still the 100 meter Commonwealth games record holder, 20 plus years on. So And Bruce for sure called that race. Um, So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny how the worlds collide. That's amazing. Uh, Last one, mate. Um,
2: Do you stay in touch with what's going on back here? I know you and Greg Russ speak regularly, but uh, amongst others, I'm sure, but um, do you keep up with supercars and and everything going over here in in your old stomping ground?
3: I, I would, I would say loosely, um, you know, and I kind of mainly do that through, through social media and, and just calls with friends and, you know, I chat with Dick Johnson and, gary rogers quite often um and and then you know other journalistic friends and just people who kind of help, help me stay in touch but it's it's uh it's a very it's a big challenge you know i'd love to stay in touch better with afl and nrl and i just it's kind of for every everything is kind of very surface level just just to barely stay in touch i know that my brisbane broncos are. Uh, Doing better than last year, but <laughs> not as, as well as I'd like. I know that my Carlton Blues are doing better than in years past, but not as good as I would like. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, um, I'm very excited about a really dear friend's son uh, by the name of Brock Feeney. Yes, um, you know Paul Paul Feeney has been a friend of mine for forever and ever and ever, and Feen uh, had a hand in my career in the early days, along with Paul Morris um Paul and Terry Morris had a huge hand in my career uh and so I love seeing what Brock's doing and and his his climb to the top um he's got that competitive gene in him you know from from his dad so um I'm I'm excited to watch how far he can go so yeah I, I stay in touch as as loosely as I can and thank goodness for social media otherwise I'd be I'd be lost with what's going on down there but um I'm excited to see the the health of both series like how V8 supercars is doing or supercars I should say is doing and um, and also the um, the uh, TCR uh, what is it what's the what's the name of the series the oh, the Australian Racing Group ARG. Australian, Australian Racing, Racing Group, Group. yes yeah, yes yeah. so good, good to see that that's that's really good I, I get to commentate on some T- TCR cars here every now and then in the yep. um, as part of the IMSA WeatherTech series uh, it's called Michelin Pilot Challenge and TCR yeah. is one of two classes in that so I've got some friends who race in it. It's cool. It's really good racing, very competitive, um, you know, reasonably affordable. And, and so I quite, quite enjoy that.
2: Mate, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Now you're in full recovery mode after a, a massive <laughs> week, month of May at the Speedway. Congrats again. Uh, we, there was a group chat of a whole array of Aussie media types and broadcasters, especially, and all of us were going, we can't believe that an Aussie gets to call the Indy 500. So we're all, just unbelievably pleased that you get to do it and you did an outstanding job. So congratulations and thanks for joining us on the grid. Thanks, mate.
3: And I haven't lost my Australian accent after all these years. No, noted, <laughs> truly noted. Very impressive. <laughs> Somebody once told me I'm t- I must be tone deaf and uh, I sure know that I can't sing. So let's hope the accent stays forever. Uh, that's a good thing. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate your time. Thanks.
0: All right, joining me on the line now for a chat, as always, we say good day to Richard Crowell. Hello, Crowell, from the Race Talk.com.
2: Uh, oh, okay. Bexter, how on earth are you? I'm
0: fantastic. And uh, normally we have this guy as a contributor, but we can actually call him a co host today because he's coming to the first segment, which is lovely. Mark Walker, hello to you.
4: Oh, thanks for having me on your program, Tony. I've, I've always
0: <laughs> dreamed of being on this end of the show. It's just great to be here. Uh, good to have you aboard, mate. And also, we've got our uh, guest joining us as well, who is a contributor on the program. He's given us a couple of great interviews with Will Davison over the time. It's Tom Archuling from Doric. Yes, Yes. you beauty.
5: You beauty. beauty. Outstanding. (laughs) Got him, yes. Hello, boys. How are we?
0: (laughs) Hello, Tom. We're well, mate. Uh, How are you? It's been a a tough couple of weeks, I'm sure, in the the corporate industry.
5: Yeah, look, um, would have loved to have gone to Winton. You know, one of those people who want to go to Winton, amazingly. But uh, unfortunately, you know, we had some pre-event stuff planned, but that didn't happen. So onwards upwards we'll to the next one.
2: Tom, for those that aren't aware, uh, firstly, tell them what your specific job is and and also who you work for and um, how that ties in with the world of motorsport.
5: Yeah. So Krause, my official job title is Marketing and Sponsorship Manager for the Outro and Long Group, which is a Group of hardware companies and our flagship one is Doric which has a business-to-business presence and a business-to-consumer presence. So the Doric shop, doric.com.au shop. And also we supply door and window hardware to all the biggest guys in Australia. So if you've got a, a blue Doric key on your key ring, have a look. That's ours. Um, so our job is obviously we sponsor uh, a lot of properties in Australia. So we do supercars with Will Davison and DJR and Australian Superbikes. With Desmos support and my job is basically to do the sponsorship stuff and then make that make money basically for our company
4: i suppose i'm always fascinated in how the, all these stickers on race cars work what they mean what's the deal behind it why are these companies involved and, and Doric's different it's been around for what are we now 16 17 years year 18 marco in the sport and year 18 oh yeah get the stats updated but It's a very different sort of thing. Like, it's such a focus on away from the track. It's corporate hospitality. It's events at customers and all this sort of thing, which is a totally different slant to how a lot of these other supercar sponsors go about their trade. A lot of these other companies, it's all about having a big sticker down the side of the car and getting the TV and the other peripheral exposure from that. But for Doric, it's more about the relationship building that motorsport brings people together.
5: Yeah. So you know, our activation budget is the same as what we spend on the actual race cars themselves. So for us, the whole aim of the sponsorship is to, to grow our customer base and pick off different ranges one by one. And that's what we've done since 2009, since I started the job where we basically had a, a targeted plan and we take the customers to the racetrack that we want to grow. And we build the relationships with them because at the end of the day, we want to buy from people that we like, and hopefully they like us. And the more they like us, um, the better chances we have of of getting more product into those guys. So that's what we've been doing for the last 10, 12 years. And we've been doing that across the country. And the great thing about supercars as a brand, as a sport is that you can take the same show across every state and territory of Australia and New Zealand. Um, And for a company like ours that has a a lot of companies, you know, AFL and NRL, for example, they're only they're very much territorial um, sports. So to have one that can go to every state and territory of Australia plus New Zealand, take the same show on the road, not have to change, and the access we get with the team is nothing you can get in any other sport. And that drives relations with our, with our customers and our staff, and then obviously leads to increased engagement and more sales, which is what we're in the game for.
0: So is that how it's all quantifiable effectively by increased sales? Is that the only way you're actually able to quantify the, the, uh, the effectiveness of the sponsorship? Well, I think
5: there's some short-term stuff and some medium-term stuff. Like, So obviously for, last, for us last year, we, we've been tied to Will Davison since 2011. And obviously 2020, we missed out because of the 23 red uh, close down. So we had a bit of time to reflect on what that was like. And the building industry for us has been through some peaks and troughs. And 2019, for example, was a really slow year for industry, but we did a lot of work, um, relationship-wise. Which then in 2020 and 2021, we've seen the benefits of. So it's yes, sales is the, probably the number one measure, but then also there's the the good the good PR and the good vibe you get from the people that are at the events who then wear because we give them merchandise. So then we give them, then you see the guys wearing our merchandise in the street. And like, I've even seen a Doric cap signed by Will Davidson on eBay for 25 bucks, for example, like things like that. Um, you can't, that's not something, something you can buy. Um, so it's just keeps the brand everywhere and uh, the long, longevity of the brand itself.
4: You mentioned access and that's something that supercars and motorsport is incredibly good at. Uh, you know, with football, you don't get to go out there and pack a scrum or do a line-out or or have any of that sort of interaction. But you can do hot laps in a supercar, uh, walking on the grid, going for a pit tour. I noticed at the Bend, after um, the team had some success, they sent the trophy upstairs to the corporate suite, which is something that you just can't get with other sports that I think we're very lucky here in motorsport that we've got access to. And
5: the teams are fantastic. You know, the teams understand, I think, they look after their sponsors so well, and some do it better than others, obviously, but to, to be able to, to link success on track and then off track to bring, give those experiences to your customers is something that you can't buy. You know, that's what they call money can't buy experiences, right? So, you know, to, for us um, as a smaller sponsor financially, something like the Ben, for example, we could have all our customers on the grid um, for the pre-race grid walk. So Anton was on pole for the Sunday races and we're able to put our guys out the front of the grid in front of the P1 pole position and had a great group photo, which we then got out and then sent to all our customers. So that type of stuff you can't, you can't do, you can't do in different sports that you can do in, in motorsport. So, you know, very fortunate because they have that great access.
2: How do you select the people that you back? So you've mentioned your relationship with Will Davidson, which goes a long way back. And instantly he strikes you as a fantastic person to be involved with because he's personable. He speaks really well, great with the media, presents well. But you're involved with John Bau, You mentioned your involvement with Dick Johnson Racing. How do you sift through what I imagine is a lot of sponsorship proposals that come across your desk and go, yeah, that's the kind of people we want to work with. I think
5: crowds, it's fit right so our industry is windows and doors and it's not being um, it's, it's a, a white male older man industry um, so someone like John Bauer he mm-hmm. resonates with people because he's been there and done it from the 70s the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s and people still talk to him about 1989 Bathurst 1995 winning the championship they don't they talk about those things and he is one of the greatest people in remembering somebody's name and makes them feel special and that type of thing for a person who's looking up to those guys they just they love right and someone like Will he he just gets it he's from a motorsport family he understands the game and we want to choose people who resonate with our customer base and with the general public because they spend a lot of time with our people and basically they're an extra salesperson. So, and we call them ambassadors for a reason because they are ambassadors for our company.
0: How much does the no dickhead policy come into play? A
5: hundred percent.
0: And I say that also because sometimes there's also an advantage of getting someone who's a little bit cheeky People can also have that affiliation with that person as well. Someone, for example, like a Shane Warn, who we know is a, a, a pretty cheeky guy around town. He's done you know a lot of a lot of different things, but still resonates in sponsorship areas because of who he is.
5: We have 100% no dickhead policy, um, but also we like people with a bit more cutting edge and a bit more um, you know what you see in public. Maybe when you close the doors and it's just a provident for us, you have a little bit more free reign to, to be who you are. And I think, you know, there's the the media side of it, which is a lot different than it was in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s to what it is today. Because, you know, a lot of the, the bigger guys sponsored by the bigger companies, you might not be able to say some things. And you see supercars even getting involved with people not being able to hold uh, energy drinks cans when taking photos, when they win races, you know, things like that. So um, we let them go because people want to be, they want to see people being authentic and that's who these people are. They're authentic race drivers who love their job and they also love entertaining people.
4: been a heck of a journey. It started out Paul Cruikshank racing back in the day. I suppose the, the first property that you sponsored was actually Will Davison when he's at Team Dynamic for a little bit there in uh, 04. Uh, Paul Crookshank Racing, James Rosenberg, uh, Erebus, been with Will when he was at HRT, obviously, FPR and the pro drive era, you've gone through a lot of different teams. You sort of had a lot of different drivers represent the brand over the years and a lot of different experiences, I guess.
5: Yeah. We, um last week we put up a a, a Doric um, Bathurst dream team because everybody seems to be doing that. All these sponsors are bringing out dream teams and we had a list of 30 or 40 names and um yeah, we've, we've had a, a, a few drivers go through the, through the brand and, they're all great people um and it's a great journey to work with different teams and you just build all those relationships you know someone like me i'm so fortunate to to be in the paddock for since 2009 you know it's you know 12 13 years i've been going to supercars races and getting paid to do it um it's pretty great and we build those relationships and for us there's the customer relationships and there's the team relationships and the supercars relationships because you get you know, those experiences you get, you know, little bonuses on the side, which is, um, which you then can give to your people to then sell more stuff.
2: Uh, now you're clearly a motor racing fan, which obviously helps the cause. And uh, I remember in 2017, I think it was you actually filed a story that ran on the race talk about a trip to Silverstone to see some old Williams Formula One cars, which is very, very cool. But just tell us a bit about your own personal motorsport journey. Where did the love of it come from? Um, highlights? What What's your take on the sport? Well,
5: I was fortunate to be called middle name Alan after Alan Moffat. My father is an Alan Moffat fan.
4: <laughs> Set up for a dive from day one. Love us. So we have a model
5: car <laughs> collection at home, which is into third cabinet, which is fantastic. And I was at a, my first racetrack at Amru Park at the age of six months. So I've been into motorsport since I was in nappies. And once you catch the drug, you don't lose it. Um, And I had been in motorsport since 2009. And then in 2015, I decided to go to London to chase the Formula One dream. And I got to do some work in Formula E which was pretty cool. Um, going to a Formula e race is one of the weirdest experiences of all time because you actually don't hear the cars because they don't sound yeah. like anything but washing machines and you, know, you can hear them from within 10 metres. Um, but I got to, I went to Moscow, set the track up for Moscow, London, Paris. Uh, so it was, it was some great experiences there, Berlin. And then um, got to do some cool things like go to the 40th anniversary of the Williams in Silverstone and then went around out of money, started to come back to Australia and Lucky enough, got back into the supercars world, and oh, you just this Australian motorsport sense at the moment—it's such a, it's such, a, it's such a momentum. You know, there's so many great categories at the moment across supercars um, and the AIG series. To for a motorsport fan in Australia, supercar, superbikes, it's, its such, such great stuff to watch right now.
0: So I want to know who's easier to deal with: individuals or teams?
5: Individuals. Teams is already like teams there's obviously, they've got to be very careful because more money means those guys get more preference. The bigger sponsors get what they want. And I suppose, you know, not a like the the boost sponsorship, for example, you know, that's a major sponsorship. It's never a minor sponsorship. So he can get all the airtime he wants from himself and saying his things. Someone like me, for example, would never be able to get that because of, the way we sit in the organisation, so definitely working personally with drivers is easier than teams.
4: Now, where's the best corporate setups? You you've done the tour. Where do you like having corporate boxes? And I suppose the part B to that question is: is there much of a price disparity? Like, if you pick a, a Winton round, is it a lot cheaper than going to the Gold Coast or Townsville or one of these big uh, red letter events? What's uh, what gives you the best bang for buck?
5: Definitely the circuit. Permit circuit ones are cheaper than the street tracks, 100%. Um, So the Gold Coast is generally the most expensive of the year. And it's also probably the best uh, atmosphere-wise. And we try and do one in every region because that's where our customers are based. So for me, the best corporate was probably Townsville at the start when we had the first Townsville years, where it was, the, you know, I think not 9, 10, 11, 12, when it was really buzzing, the streets were closed off, 180,000 people. That was really good. And I think right now, probably Adelaide was Clipsal, uh, Super Looper event, which we had and no longer, don't no like have, was the best by a long way. It was the greatest event we had on the calendar in terms of corporate. It was four days packed. It was warm. The weather was great. And mm-hmm. generally... You had great on-track action, twenty-four-seven. There wasn't a dud category um, on track at all.
4: But saying that, a big, hot, warm four-day event in summer—does it? Does your beer bill go up a lot? Like, do, don't you prefer to have something cold at winter? We just have to sell a few
0: coffees. Yeah, isn't it just hundred bucks a head, and you drink what you drink? Uh, that's
5: that's it, your There's no, uh, oh, it's, right. there's no, um, there's no limit, so you can. Uh, Get on the grog from when they sell you to, where you not get when they tell you to stop, and doesn't cost me. You know, I'm I'm cheap for a corporate. And I have to pay to go, but I don't drink because so I'm working, so I don't, I don't, I can't take the the drinking, so someone else got to do it for me.
0: Hmm. Well, Tom, it's been an interesting chat. We don't often get the opportunity to to delve into the sponsorship area as much as we would like. So, thank you so much for your time. And it is it has been proven the podcasting also can be very lucrative for companies who want to jump on board as a sponsor. I just wasn't sure whether you were aware of that. Well I don't I, I think there's a there's a
5: gentleman on the call called Mr. R. Crail. Uh, we've had a discussion multiple times around the Doric brand sponsoring the the race talk, but I'm, I haven't really had a proposal yet. But
4: Can we have a, a an at uh, a point like just before this. Yeah.
0: No no we are completely <laughs> honest and
2: open about our our uh, business
0: activity. Proposal will be our, in the email business. tomorrow. No
5: but Thank you, thank yeah. you, boys. Good to, good to talk properly. Um, I love what you guys do and crash on it and keep pushing. It's great stuff. Well done. Thank you.
0: And mate, thank you so much too for the work that you've uh, you, provided us with the uh, Will Davison chats. We'll continue to use them throughout the year because uh, our, our fans like to have a listen to them and always good to hear what Will has got to say about racing. But thank you, mate, for joining us, and we'll uh, talk to you shortly. All the best, guys. Tom Archuli from Doric. Or oh, Doric, yes. Doric. Yeah, Doric. <laughs> well, I was trying to get that Greek inflection. Yeah, got it. Joining oh, us here on the grid. Makes... This is On the Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. All right, uh, let's continue the show. There's been a fair bit happening over the weekend, especially over in the world of America with the Indy 500. A fantastic race, boys. It went right down to the wire, didn't it? You really didn't know who was going to win that one, even, even in the last 100 meters. When the lead cars came on traffic, anything could have happened.
2: Super race, Shebex. just awesome. Um, and what a, what an outcome for the sport to the the first race back there with a with a crowd after last year, which really did feel weird, because um, so much of the soul of that race, even watching from home, is about the the fact that it's rammed full of people and you can hear the crowd over the race cars. Uh, what a driver to do it. A little bit of indie history. In fact, it's not really a little bit. It's a massive bit of indie history yeah. to have the fourth only four-time winner of a race that's been going 105 occasions. That's remarkable. Um, and the way in which it happened, fastest ever field for the Indy 500 in qualifying, fastest ever Indy 500 stage, an average speed of 190 miles an hour, um, less cautions in indie history, um, 35 lead changes, I think. 400 on-track passes um, and a, a brilliant fight to the end between two of the young stars of IndyCar racing and a 46-year-old Brazilian bloke who still does the job. Spectacular show, great race, absolutely loved it. Um, story, Mark, didn't go quite the way we'd hoped for the local heroes, but you, you get around that just for the, the spectacle that occurred in the, the wee hours of Monday morning. At least Scotty was in the conversation. Like, you... <laughs> He didn't know what to
4: expect from the race. Like, how's it going to go? How's he going to finish? But if it wasn't for his mistake on pit lane, he was on for a top 10. He was up there in the conversation. And even when he ran long in the fuel, hoping for that caution at the end, which never came, like he was running with those leaders. He was well and truly a part of what was going on there. So uh, a great first outing for him. You know, he led Penske in qualifying and he... He did nearly a perfect job there on Sunday. So, yeah, onwards and upwards for Scotty.
0: Yeah. yeah. It was a great run, there's no doubt, by Scotty. And the, the other, other New Zealander as well, boys, Scott Dixon, also uh, with fuel problems, but he obviously was a lot earlier. He had to come in during that caution period. Pit lane was closed, and that really screwed his race over.
2: Yeah, just a worst time pace car for, uh, for both Scott Dixon and Alex Rossi and, and a bunch of guys who would do their first round of stops. The, the irony of all of that is that Scott Dixon is generally regarded as the best fuel saving driver in IndyCar car racing, which is why he's won so many races and that he invents fuel where there isn't any and gets the thing in. But even then had to pit under a closed pit, which is a no, no, but you can do it if it's an emergency stop, which is what it was because the thing was dead stick. Um, the irony is those cars can roll for, half a lap without stopping because they're so drag free which is the whole idea of running on a super speedway but the thing just didn't refire uh, and that was his race done the fact he got back on the lead lap was meteoric and yeah. had it been a usual indy 500 with five or six or seven pace car interruptions it might have been a different story and he might have been able to strategize his way back into the race but it was such a fast open race he couldn't get himself back on the lead lap So day done for probably the only guy in the 33 car field that could have been classed a favorite given what he'd done in the month leading up to it, because it was dominant right up to that point. It's sort of funny because it was carnage free
4: largely. I mean, that race start, that was, that had a bit on, didn't it? I thought that we were absolutely on for a shunt there. Somehow they sawed themselves out through that. The only accidents were, uh, Graham Rahel when his wheel fell off, which is merely Graham Rahel's fault, and those dramas coming into the pits with uh, Stefan Wilson, uh, Simone De Felt, Silvestro, uh, who ended up losing out in the pits, and Will Will Power had a spin as well. So it was, seemed yeah. like the pit entry was where all the drama was. But only two cautions for the whole race was uh, a remarkable effort considering how ferocious the racing was.
3: Yeah,
2: I, I the the whole pit lane thing for mine was interesting, and I I, I watched the replay back last night and. On Monday night, and uh, Townsend Bell picked up on it that that he heard whispers up and down pit lane that there were people sort of trying to do interesting thing with their brakes because, of course, the less uh, friction you've got on your brakes, the better the car's going to roll. It'll find that extra point oh one of a mile an hour that you need at that place. Um, and you know Scott McLaughlin was really hard on himself for not pumping the brakes enough to get into pit lane, which is why he had his dramas. But three Penske cars had the same issue. He had it. Will Power had it and ended up spinning. And Simona, who was a Penske car, had the same problem, all of them with braking issues getting into pit lane. So, look, other drivers had it. Ryan hunter Ray went in way too deep, cost himself a shot at winning because he was real fast. But there's something in there when three of the five Penske cars have the same basic issue going into the lane. So, a little strange little thing there. but. Yeah, that was that was weird, but such a fast, ferocious race, like you said, and the way it all played out was great. But I, I read a story from one of the Indianapolis press um, who was talking about Castroneves and um, quoted one of the drivers going, "You could see that Elio had raced there twenty times and Polo had only raced there once before, because the way that Castroneves just played that race in the last fifteen laps and." bided his time, waited and waited and then struck when he needed to, right at the point where Pillow had absolutely no shot of getting back. So that, that was where experience came to the fore and the 21 starts of Indy 500 history that Castro Nevers had really came to the fore and that's why he won that race.
4: And one of the other great stories that I like from it is Mike Shank, his car mm. owner. Um, my favourite podcast outside of... Uh, what's this one called, Shebex? On I've forgotten again On the Grid. Oh, on the run home uh is a a podcast called dinner with Racers. they've interviewed all the legends of north american motorsport but it's often these guys who you've never heard of that they go and talk to that have the most incredible stories and uh, mike shank is well known if you you're into your sports car racing over in the states you'd know about mike shank but just a danderworth great bloke great story started out at the the lower levels of the road to Indy, here he is owning cars in the Indy 500 and winning the whole show, which was a pretty amazing thing.
0: Yeah, no doubt. It certainly is an amazing thing. The whole event is an amazing thing. And to see it, as you said, Richard, with crowd there is fantastic. And the audibility of that crowd at times when guys are overtaking, or even when Roger Penske was speaking at the end of his speech and the like that noise is just amazing, and there was only 150,000 people there. I can't remember what it was like when we had four thousand, four hundred thousand there when we when we were there, but it must have been loud because you get so yeah. enthralled.
2: Well, I I can, um, and and the thing that struck with me there's there's heroes of that place that get a bigger roar yeah. and on Monday morning our time, it was when Connor Daly got the lead and he's from Noblesville, Indiana, so he's about as local as they come. Um and he got an enormous roar uh when he grabbed the lead for the first time in his his life, having grown up at that race. Uh, obviously his dad Derek Daly, famous for being involved there and as a driver and a broadcaster as well. Um that was incredible. I, I remember it in sixteen Shebex when Tony Canaan got the lead and Canaan's one of those drivers who's a an indie hero, despite not being a Yank, but they, they love him there. He's a cult hero at that place. And I, I from memory, he got the lead in 16, 40 or 50 laps in and where we were halfway between one and two um, the place went ballistic and you could not hear racing cars for punters, which was just epic. Uh, yeah. And I, I thought NBC did a super job of that on the weekend. You could hear the crowd. So the, the, the audio was outstanding, but then at the end, when Castro Nevers was going absolutely bonkers celebrating, they just let it go. Yeah. Um. And even like Will Power went up and said, "You're an effing legend." Um. And usually <laughs> American broadcasters <laughs> would be, "Oh, we're sorry for that. We're sorry. We're sorry." But there's just nothing. They just let it go, and oh, I thought that was just fantastic. Really, really well done. And so much of the the soul of that race is in the four hundred thousand people there. And the the beauty of it is is that there's it's not permanent. Well, it's not individual seating they're bleacher seats so when you're at 40 percent capacity it still looked in the grandstands full yep. um, which is absolutely brilliant I, I think I read an interview with Doug Bowles who's a track president and it's going to be interesting in two weeks he said look we'll we're going to monitor it and see if there's a noticeable spike in COVID cases in Indiana in two weeks time to see mm. if there is a there was an outcome of it but um like everyone that went in was supposed to be vaccinated they mandated masks no one wore them but they said you had to wear them so you know at least they tried um look fantastic just such a cool thing to see and um you know we're we're probably been lucky here because we've had that you know this year where we've had crowds back at racetracks but um for america that's a, a massive step forward for them and it's such an important part of that race
4: our team we gave this event the power rankings treatment on the race talk Mm. normally it's something reserved for our shannon's meets or the supercar events here in australia it was refreshing to do something that was totally different over in the states twitter is a much bigger thing than it is here locally so there was a lot more content to harvest and to go through my goodness there's some you go through the article and there is some genuinely funny stuff and i think the funniest is that clip of connor daly in the background of the, it was Marco yep. Andretti interview. He just casually pulls out this comb on from day. on Polder and just starts brushing the mullet and flicks it
2: around. It was a flick knife mullet comb.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Is a great mullet.
2: <laughs> well, we put Connor in the in the power rankings in the top ten because he's the kind of personality that the sport needs. He's just loose, but I mean, yeah. he can drive a race car clearly. But yeah, he's. He's loose. He rocks a mullet. He absolutely loves the fact that he rocks a mullet. Um, he's so fiercely passionate about it, but he's just such a loose unit as well, which is yeah. just so good. The, the social
4: bants between him and McLaughlin are classic. There's some yes. really good stuff yeah. there. When they were playing golf during the week and and everything else that's been going on, there's some, there's some good personalities over there at the moment, and Scotty's fitting right in with it. Yeah. He
0: certainly is. Uh, just on Scotty, guys, of course, he was... Uh, Rookie of the, of the race, which was fantastic for him yep. to, to get that prize. Had that prize not been up on offer and that title of being the, uh, the leading rookie, do you reckon he might've tried to go the distance?
2: No. Yeah. Well, he's going to run out. It's just impossible. You, no, you, you got to finish. And, and remember it's a championship race as well uh, and worth double points. And he's still in the top 10 in the championship. So he had to get the thing to the finish. The thing about Scott and, and it's been the story since his first race he looked like he'd done that race forever. Oh, yeah. Like, it just... He didn't at, look out of place. At, at no point did he look like he was out of it. And you go, okay, well, he, he balls that going into pit lane. But Will Power didn't. And he won the race in 2018. And he's one of the most successful IndyCar drivers in history. So, he wasn't the only one. Um, it just... It felt so natural for him being in that race. Like, just... I thought the job he did was really, really good. Really a- good. And he was five laps different, Mark. Like five laps from having enough fuel in that thing to go to the end. And he would have finished fifth. Like, yeah. It's just amazing. And the thing that I'm thankful for after he had to make that pit stop, basically lost the lap. He was
4: almost in the photo there at the finish. I'm just yes. glad that he didn't have a, a part of the outcome there at the end. Cause he was obviously yeah. running his own race and was in a pack of cars. So he could, just couldn't pull over and stop. But I'm just glad that those leaders didn't catch him before the,
2: the finish line. Yeah. Another lap. Yeah. Another lap. They would have been there. No, it's such a cool motor race. Um, absolutely worth getting up for. Um, pulverized me on Monday, but man, just <laughs> no, no regrets for that. Uh I skipped the NASCAR race, wasn't interested in that and caught up with a little bit of sleep. But um yeah, so cool
4: the, Na- the NASCAR race is nearly finished, so <laughs> yeah, yeah no, <laughs> still it'll catch it. The end of that. <laughs> it might be
2: done by the time this goes live.
4: It, um
0: it definitely it definitely oh, yeah, every on. year earns its spot and just solidifies its spot in the top. Three or four motor races in the world,
2: yeah. Of of all the things last year, shebex that were strange so empty MCG for a footy game, yeah, that's weird. That was just shocking to see. Empty Bathurst, and yeah, yeah, there were 5,000 people that rubbish that look, look, it looked awful. That was really, really strange. But, but watching the Indy 500 which to day is still the largest single-day sporting event in the world, to have no one there, that was just obscure.
0: Mm. So
2: 40% capacity or not, uh, the biggest thing mm-hmm. for mine was that how much a role, having punters there plays a role in the atmosphere of that race. So there or not, watching it on TV, it was such a factor. Um, because it was so shockingly obvious last year that it just had no soul because of that. And that race is entirely built on soul. Like it's the longest existing motor race in the world it's got so much history built around it being that enormous coliseum and um i, I think it was a stark reminder for those that really really love that race and follow it closely about how terrible last year was and how amazing it was to have have punters back there and the fact they got such a good show man indycar nailed it yeah. this year with the, with the setup i don't don't deviate from that
0: that was a good, good friend Dale. Rogers came up with an idea for a, a top five, which we're probably due to do one. We haven't done one for a while. Top five racetracks you've been to and top five on the bucket list. Mm-hmm. I reckon yep. that might not be too far away. We'll get the, the public involved with their thoughts as well when it's time to yes. record that one, but that'll be a ripper.
4: Uh, you know, what's on my bucket list, Winton supercars. That's uh, it's definitely <laughs> right up there. Ah, uh, that was a shame, wasn't it? And what was the, was pulled on that thursday wasn't it so it yeah. wasn't quite the wednesday morning that we're normally used to with the recording of this podcast yeah Usually i've never known really i've never known cleaning.
0: so many of my podcasts to become irrelevant after 24 hours <laughs> yeah in the last 12 months
4: yeah but uh so, at least and, they've and, they've put it off till august so we'll be able to freeze any campers that aren't well prepared so that's going to be something oh, it'll to be keep colder. an eye out. it'll be way colder and it was yep. freezing cold there in the weekend. It would have been three, minus three degrees there yep. on the weekend, but August is going to be shockingly cold. I,
2: I was at Winter for some rally cross two years ago in late July, and it was a 15 minute process to get the ice off the window yep. of the car in the morning before driving to the racetrack. And yeah, it, it's just lucky they're bringing the super duper soft tire.
1: <laughs> They'll it's like, uh, it.
2: it's, it's, yeah, absolutely. Um, Fortunately, though, um, I think we did a reasonably good job of previewing the event. So, come the last weekend of July, we'll just get uh, we'll to copy and paste. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it. I think it's valid. I think so what we'll, you we'll just roll in.
4: What you want for the event is the hard liquor concession. Yes, because I think you'll be selling a lot of rumbos just before bedtime
0: there.
2: Has Jim Beam still got porridge rights at supercar events? Because they're going to do a, they're ripping trade there.
0: I would be just they, shots, I would suggest a yes. nude run at Mount Buller the day before just to get acclimatised. Oh, a what now? A nude run at Mount Buller.
2: I'm not sure why you'd put you just do it at Winton. It'll be just as cold. Yeah, that's true. worth less snow, or maybe. But it was a it was a tough
4: deal because I I had people coming down from Queensland to race in the support events and. I'm on the phone to them the whole way down going, just park it at Albury, mate. Don't cross this border because you'll be in strife trying to get home, which uh, fortunately was the case. And by the sounds of it, there were a whole lot of different people from V8 TV. The supercars teams from Queensland were parked up at the border and they're all just there waiting for the inevitable uh, pull the pin and go home. Fortunately, the Kinross Woolshed opened at 10am. So I think they did a booming trade with the car park full of (laughs) race cars.
0: We should mention too that we did try to get, comment from a couple of uh, racing teams here in Melbourne in regards to the possibility of a move up to New South Wales on Wednesday of this week which of course is the day after we record this podcast but no one seemed to want to talk about it which was quite interesting
2: yeah I think it's a fairly delicate scenario Shebex because everyone's still got nightmares from the 40 odd days they're on the road last year I think so as as we go to don't really go to print, do we? As we go to uh, go to record, um, it looks like that the Victorian teams will go to New South Wales, and they will be able to self isolate for two. The, the Darwin Triple Crown, so they can go and run there, um, and then allegedly they've been promised that they can go home after that, irrespective of what's going on in Victoria at the time. Um, so this is, of course, around the Victorian lockdown. For those of you that are listening online through RSL, um, Melbourne's back in lockdown again, and um, there's no movement in or out of the state at the moment. So, yeah, it's another one of those situations where they really they have to get Darwin in for their government contractual obligations up there, and then, then they're just going to play it by ear and hope that things have settled down so that the field can roll on to Townsville and then Winton it will be after that. It's interesting, the comms plan that
4: seems to be coming from supercars at the moment, and a lot of it seems to stem around no comment. Uh, You look at this Winton event and the supercars website rehashed an eight-hour-old press statement from the Banala Auto Club on Wednesday evening, eight hours after it was published Mm. on the Winton social media channels, which I I thought was a bit weird, saying that it's all confirmed going ahead. Well, the, the way it was worded, in my liking, wasn't very good because it was all saying that it's all systems go. We're definitely happening where I think it was more of a softer approach going, Hey, we're all going, if we're allowed to sort of thing, I think that probably would have been a lot easier way to let down all the fans, if they were more understanding that way. But the, the gag order that went down last year, the gag order that's down at the moment, the non-communication about gen three stuff, if they get out in front and own the message, then they get ahead of it. They don't lose all the, the punters, you know, all the punters who are offside about Gen 3 because they don't know what's going on. The media who are offside who don't know what's going on. If you get mm. in front of it, then you control the message and you don't yeah. get all these people who are telling you that Gen 3 is going to be rubbish, that whatever moves are happening with the championship at the moment are rubbish. That's just my, my thinking about it. I might be wrong, but
2: um, yeah. No, I, I think it's valid. I, I really do. And yeah, it's, it, and uh, look, it, it's hard to get on the front foot about something you know, nothing about because this situation changes so quickly, but saying nothing at all doesn't help the cause at all. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, that I think the, um, the AFL has been quite good about communicating what they're trying to do as far as shifting games around. And, and mm. you know, they've come out and said, Oh, look, we're, we're working with state governments to do a fly in fly out options for our teams. And, you know, they've got a track record of 12 months of operating in bubbles and things like that to, to go to governments with, to keep the competition going. So yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think it's, um, there's not been enough said and yeah, we, we approached every supercar team based in Melbourne and not one of them was willing to go on the record about what the plans are and, and what's going to happen. I think they understand that Darwin has to happen for sure. Um, but yeah, it, it's a really, really difficult situation. And um. Yeah, we, we just don't know. I mean, you know, Melbourne could have five days of no cases from the day we push record and, you know, in two weeks it'll be open and it won't be an issue. But um, at the same time, it could get worse. And and what yeah. happens if, if this goes for a month? Um, do they go on the road again to keep the sport going? Or is it does that just not happen? I, I, I don't know. That, that would be a disaster if it doesn't for everybody. Time
0: will tell. Gentlemen, always great to catch up. We'll do it again uh, next week. Thanks,
2: Jamex. Nice work on the pronunciation at the start. Good effort. Like it.
0: Thank you very much, Richard Crail. Mark Walker, catch you next week too, buddy.
2: Thanks, Tony. Looking forward to a
4: solid Sunday night sleep this week.
0: And we'll catch you next week as well, right here on The Grid.